0: I knew I wanted to be in a spa
1: The Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 18th of May 2017. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy or optical astronomy and this week our special guest is Dr Anthony Horton and he is an instrument scientist for the Australian Astronomical Observatory and he's going to tell us about the Huntsman and the Space Eye Project. In each episode, we'll have a news roundup to wrap up each show. We'll hear about what's up in the observable sky with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Hello, Anthony. Hi, Brendan. It's a pleasure today to be speaking with Dr. Anthony Horton. Anthony is an instrument scientist at the Australian Astronomical Observatory, formerly the Anglo-Australian Observatory. He was awarded his PhD in astrophysics from Cambridge, where he also did his master's. Now, before we go into your fabulous work with unique optical astronomical instruments, Anthony, we'd like you to tell us a little bit about your background, like Where did you grow up in the UK and tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place?
2: Okay, well, I grew uh, grew up in Coventry, right in the middle of England. And as long as I can remember, really, I've been interested in science in a very broad sense and the world around me in all sorts of ways. But there are a few things that I can remember in particular that I think were really an inspiration for where I've ended up. In particular, I do remember the Voyager 1 and 2 missions taking place. The Voyager 2 flybys of Uranus and Neptune in in 1986 and 89 were happening when I was 8 or 11 years old. And I certainly remember at the time as these amazing images, places that never really been seen before coming in and in TV documentaries and in you know, later on, beautiful books filled, filled with these images. I think that was really a big inspiration in my interest in space.
1: Very good. So tell us about your early university days and your early ambitions.
2: When I went to university, I still didn't have a clear idea of uh, what I wanted to do. I still had a, I had broad interests in physics, in chemistry and various other sciences. And so I started a course which was enabled me to actually pursue several subjects to begin with physics, chemistry, material science and and maths courses before eventually settling on physics and then more specifically astrophysics.
1: Okay, so then you went on to Cambridge for your Masters, your PhD and your postdoc. I went and had a look at your PhD, it's fantastic and I see it's been cited in another 50 papers. Can you tell us why astrophysicists use the letter Z or Z to describe red-shifted galaxies?
2: I think it's just an arbitrary convention, as I can tell. There isn't actually any meaning behind it. It's just a media symbol to represent it, and, and Z wasn't being used for, for anything else. It seems to have been in use since the 1930s, at least, with some early cosmology papers by William de Sitter, but no, no explanation that I can find. It's <laughs> just one of those things.
1: Very good. So you're doing a lot of research for your PhD and your postdoc in looking at distant galaxies. Can you tell us what instruments or data sources do you use to study these distant galaxies?
2: Yeah, so the main topic of my PhD and short postdoc afterwards was an experimental instrument specifically designed to find very distant galaxies. It's called Dazzle, hence the Dark Ages Redshift, Z, Lyman Alpha Explorer. Yep came from an instrumentation group that has a history of tortured acronyms. And this was a good example. So this was an infrared imaging instrument using uh, specially designed filters to pick out particular wavelengths where we might expect to find emission from star formation in these galaxies at at huge distances. And I was involved in various aspects of design and, and building of that instrument.
1: Very good. So let's move on then. Tell us how you came to move from Cambridge to Sydney and take a position at the Anglo-Australian Observatory back then as an instrument scientist.
2: I was very lucky that an opportunity arose at the AAO around the time when I was finishing up with my work in Cambridge. They had a position for an instrument scientist and I had the right sort of background in instrumentation covering various things Including control software, they wanted somebody uh, who's able to do. I'd also worked with the AAO before because the Dazzle Instrument Project had been a collaboration with the AAO. I already all the people involved.
1: Very good. Now the AAO runs a 3.9 meter AAT scope out at Siding Spring, and they also run the UK Schmidt telescope. Tell us about some of your early work in Australia, Anthony.
2: Okay, so one of the main things that I was originally hired to do at the AAO was be the instrument scientist for the project to replace the Anglo-Australian Telescope's control system. So the AAT was one of the first, the first large telescope to be designed for complete computer control. And that was kind of revolutionary when it was commissioned in 1974. But by 2005, when I joined the AAO, it was still at its heart the original computer and software. An yep. interdata Data Model 70 mini-computer yep. Yep. and an awful lot of uh, assembly language and Fortran code. And it was still working fine. It did everything that Telescope really needed, but it was becoming increasingly difficult to maintain and to expand its capabilities. So the decision had been made to completely replace the system, yep. which is difficult to do because... You don't want to shut down the telescope. It's a a valuable commodity and you need to keep it running every night that you can. And so we ended up working on this project using writing simulators a lot. And then ultimately we ended up building a whole new control system in parallel with the existing one with a big cabinet of switches so we could switch between the two.
1: Very good. And sometimes people are queued up for years ahead to have time on a scope.
2: It's a very precious resource, Telescope Time. Yeah, I was subscribed by at least a factor of three most of the time, I think. Okay, and what else about your early work? So the other side of my work was was a technology uh, research and development work, specifically in those days uh, working on what we called fiber grating poet suppression which is quite a mouthful, but essentially what it is is a special type of optical fibre device which is used to filter out some of the glow from the sky itself, from the upper atmosphere, in the infrared wavelengths. The infrared sky, night sky, is much brighter than it is at the optical, which is, of course, a problem if you've got a telescope on the ground trying to look into space through all of this. But with these special fibre backgrading filters, we're able to actually filter out a large part of this. So this was technology development that has been going on the AAO for pretty much all of my time here.
1: Now you're still at the AAO as their instrument scientist and working on some amazing projects like Huntsman and CubeSats and Sp- Space eye. Now, excuse the pun, please, Anthony, but would you like to focus on just Huntsman and then Space Eye and tell us what these instruments are, what they do, how they'll be used in research. And first up, Huntsman looks amazing. And we'll tell our listeners who are on Facebook to go to tinyall.com forward slash Huntsman Horton. That's all lowercase, all one word to find out more about Huntsman. So tell us,
2: Anthony, tell us about Huntsman. So Huntsman's a very interesting joint project between the AAO and Macquarie University to use commercial off-the-shelf optics, including DSLR camera lenses, to study the outer parts of galaxies. So it may seem odd that you know, astronomers with access to these enormous telescopes would turn to uh, really, really small ones to do this sort of work, but it turns out that for the right sort of science... The small telescopes have an advantage. This idea originally came from Bob Abraham and uh, Peter Van Dockham at Toronto and Yale, who built uh, something called the Dragonfly Telephoto Array, an array of big telephoto lenses, um, DSLR lenses with off-the-shelf cameras attached, and they uh, showed that this uh, this system was actually very good at uh, at studying these these outer faint parts of. Of nearby galaxies where normally you'd run into problems with stray light from brighter objects nearby, but, but these lenses produced very clean images that enabled them to find fine structures that had previously been missed. Little satellite galaxies and even entirely new class of galaxies, ultra diffuse galaxies, they found in the Coma Cluster. These are galaxies the size of the Milky Way, but with only a tiny fraction of the, the number of stars.
1: Fantastic,
2: yeah. Yeah, and so Huntsman is our southern hemisphere version. So we're going to be installing this at Science Spring Observatory this year and get up and running with our southern survey of uh, nearby galaxies, groups, and clusters
1: and I see that you've been training young PhDs in using this instrument.
2: It's been a great project for students. Um, We've been taking a lot of uh, undergraduate interns and we're hoping to get graduate students uh, working on this soon as well. It's observational astronomy in a reduced scale. It's a small project where where we can get students on two, three months internships to really have a big impact and and really get to know a lot about, about how you run a project like this.
1: What is your role as the instrument scientist on Huntsman?
2: So my focus has really been on the hardware side, recommending and selecting various bits of equipment that we'll be using, and also I've been doing some work on the control software side. getting back to my roots a little bit there, um, right from when I did control software for the Dazzle instrument and the the Telescope control system at the AAT.
1: Fantastic. So let's move on now to SpaceEye. It's a tiny instrument. It's a CubeSat ten by ten by ten that will be in a low Earth orbit that can be manoeuvred to point and image different spots of interest beyond our galaxy. Tell us about this SpaceEye project, it sounds
2: phenomenal. Yeah, so this is a really exciting Proposal at this stage, which we're hoping to get funded soon, yeah, this would be an Australian, Australian-led based telescope, albeit one about the size and shape of a shoebox. This is a big collaboration between Australian universities, as some of us at the moment, and the AAO, and we're we're hoping to build build a small telescope along the same lines as the Huntsman sort of work, using a small telescope that's not so different from a camera lens, to look for very faint, extended structures around nearby galaxies, but also study the history of the universe. very ambitious thing to do with such a small telescope but looking at the the cosmic infrared background, which are basically the sum of light from all of the objects which are too small or faint or distant to to see individually, but you can see their combined light as a sort of general background illumination, and that, that tells you about the total star formation history of the universe. Awesome. How do you aim this instrument and change your targets? Well, there we will be using a CubeSat spacecraft chassis that, from a company in the US that, uh, that has an internal attitude control system. They have uh, metal reaction wheels, um, ah. set up three of those, which spin up to rotate the um, spacecraft in the opposite direction. But uh, we need much finer guidance than you can get with these uh, miniaturized satellite systems, so we'll have to have a stabilization system on top of that. So we'll be doing something that is fairly familiar for owners of a number of consumer cameras that have in image stabilisation, yep. we'll be having the image sensor mounted on the little um, actuators that can move it from side to side to compensate for, for small vibrations of the satellite.
1: Awesome. And what about a power source uh, solar array? Yeah, solar panels, yeah. Very good. So what's the specs on this instrument, Anthony, and the timeline for this Space Eye project?
2: Well, the telescope itself is it's just nine centimetres in diameter. That's as big as we can fit within a CubeSat. Form factor and it'll give us a field of view of 1.6 by 1.2 degrees. So, uh, you know, a chunk of sky, a bit bigger than the, the full moon, uh, several times bigger than that. It'll be doing, doing imaging and uh, just beyond the, the, uh, the limit of human vision in the sort of 700 nanometers, one micron near infrared range. And uh, we hope to be uh, funded around the end of this year. We've got a grant application in at the moment being considered. And if we are successful in getting that funding, it'd be a three-year project to build and then launch, launch this. So we we'll would be looking at 2021-ish.
1: Fantastic. Now, for our listeners, let's travel back to 2005 when you had the big move out to
2: Australia. Much culture shock, Anthony? Well, perhaps surprisingly, um, not that much. Coming from the UK, I certainly noticed a lot of differences, but I didn't have a big culture shock. Probably helped there that I knew already some of my new colleagues at the AAO, and back then the AAO was the Anglo-Australian Observatory, a joint UK-Australian organisation, and so employed quite a few fellow ponds, including one who I shared office with in Cambridge just a year or two beforehand, so I certainly was made to feel welcome and helped to adapt
1: Fantastic, and now you have a three-year-old son who loves having candles on every cake in the house, (laughs) and we could talk about standardised candles, but let's save that for another time, because now the microphone is all yours, Anthony. So if you wish, you can give us your personal rant or rave or obsession with astrophysics, science, outreach, whatever you choose.
2: Yeah, thank you. So one of the issues that faces science at the moment is really the reward structure there is the infamous phrase uh, publish or perish and it's certainly true that of early mid-career scientists in particular they are under very great pressure to publish as much as they possibly can in terms of academic papers and this is often viewed as the only metric that's important of course the problem is in order to do good science, there are lots of other things that have to be going on as well. And things in particular I'm thinking of here are writing software or, in fact, building instruments for that matter. So for a lot of these scientists, some choose to to spend some of their time doing this work that benefits the scientific community, working on on software or instrumentation, but uh, it ends up being to their own detriment because they don't get to publish as much as a result, come away from that. Uh, And and often this can be a real problem for their own careers. So there needs to be needs to be a move to recognise uh, the value of these efforts more, um, and uh, there are some promising steps in this direction. A couple of projects that are trying to quantify these, so that um, so that you can, for example, this project called DEPSI, which is an attempt to quantify the the impact of scientists who write software that other people use in the same way that, that people measure publication outputs, papers and so on. yep so it sort of converts the, the value of their their software writing into into the same sort of terms in terms of citations and publications. And so this sort of thing I think needs to be prioritized more in future because because the, these sorts of efforts are increasingly vital for, for all forms of science.
1: Yes, that's very much the era we're moving into. Well, thank you, Anthony. And we'd recommend that those on Twitter should follow Anthony as at Vacant Third Man, that's at V-A-C-A-N-T, the number three R-D man. And the Huntsman Project at at Astro Huntsman, that's at Astro, capital A-S-T-R-O, capital H-U-N-T-S-M-A-N. Well, thank you, Dr. Anthony Horton. It's been fabulous talking with you, and we'll talk again in 12 months to see how all your projects are running.
2: Thanks, Ben. It's been a pleasure.
1: Next up, our regular feature, What's Up Doc, with Dr. Ian Astroblog-Musgrave. <whistles> Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How are you? Very well, thank you. Excellent. Okay, Ian, can you tell us what's up
0: in the sky this week? Last week, but without the added occultations and uh, meteors. What we are getting at the moment is two of the gas giants being very easy to see in the sky at the moment. Yep. In the early evening, we've got Jupiter. Now, Jupiter over the past weeks has been almost in between two of the bright stars of Virgo, the Virgin. Initially, at the beginning of this month, it was quite close to the bright white star speaker, and the pair rising together was very pleasant to look at. Over the past week or so, Jupiter's becoming closer and closer to the bright star Yeah, It's not as bright as speaker, but when you see the three of them in the night sky, they're both very obvious. Of course, Jupiter is now in a very good position for observing telescopically, in the sense that you don't have to wait up until midnight for Jupiter to be high enough above the sky. It's now quite high by astronomical twilight, that is, by the time the sky is completely dark, and it's at its highest at a reasonable hour of night so if you want to watch Jupiter at its highest it's about 10 o'clock local time a little bit earlier some places roughly about 10 o'clock local time Jupiter will be at its highest above horizon very convenient for uh, watching early in the evening so you'll be able to see the bright Galilean moons moving across the face of Jupiter sometimes close to the great red spot so it should be quite nice. Is that for people who have 6- to 8-inch telescopes, Ian? You can watch it with something as small as a 4-inch, although it would be very, very hard to see the shadow of Io on Jupiter. But 8-inch and above telescopes will give you a much better view. So for those people with 4-inch or, say, 50mm refractors, you'll be able to see Io disappear as it goes in front of Jupiter quite easily. You'll be able to see Europa appearing from Eclipse quite easily. But the shadow of Io may be very hard to pick up unless you've got very clear conditions. For those of you with larger telescopes, then the shadow of Io's are much easier to pick up.
1: Very good. And Venus is
0: looking brilliant. Venus is looking very brilliant in the morning sky. And if you look just below it, you'll see Mercury. Now, I was actually reading something on the interwebs earlier this week about how there was a claim that you could only see Mercury with a telescope. Now, this isn't true. Mercury can be quite difficult to see because at various times in the morning or evening sky, it can be very close to the horizon and so uh, difficult to see in the twilight. For example, for the southern hemisphere, this is one of the best times to see Mercury in the morning. It will be very high in the skies an hour before sunrise, very easy to see, and this the next two weeks will be an excellent time to see them, especially on the 23rd and the 24th. On the 23rd, the thin crescent moon is right next to Venus. Venus is waxing now, so it's almost no longer a crescent. But still, the, uh, having a look at the half moon Venus and then at the thin crescent moon will be quite quite interesting. And then on the 24th you'll see the thin crescent moon right next to Mercury. So if you're having difficulty in deciding which particular bright object next to the horizon is Mercury, which you shouldn't because Mercury is currently the only bright object just above the eastern horizon an hour before sunrise, And you'll be able to tell very easily on the 24th when the crescent moon appears next to Mercury. This will make a very nice photograph if you're interested in astrophotography. On the 22nd, the moon, Venus and Mercury form a nice line in the early morning skies. Then on the 23rd, the crescent moon is just below Venus and a little bit to the left. And then on the 24th, the moon is just above Mercury. So it'll be very easy to tell. And it will make a very nice photograph for wide field cameras. Mercury and the moon are too far apart to really look at them through telescopes.
1: So Ian, when you're talking about a waning moon, does that mean that the moon is rising later each day and
0: it's getting smaller and smaller? Yes, Well, when we talk about waxing and waning moons, a waxing moon is when the moon is getting thicker and thicker as it rises above the horizon towards the full moon, and once the moon has got past full, it gets thinner and thinner until it's a thin crescent. Of course, this means that the Moon is rising later and later. It also means that the evening skies are fairly clear, so it will be fantastic for observing. One of the good things about the Moon now rising after midnight is that you're going to see Saturn at the core of Milky Way again. Now, once the Moon has been full, the brightness of the Moon washes out a lot of the interesting things in the sky. Saturn is now sitting almost in the middle of the, the core of the Milky Way, very close to the Trifid Nebula and the Lagoon Nebula. Yep. Saturn's rings are tilted uh, quite favourably, so you can see almost to their maximum extent. Yep. And this will look really nice even in small telescopes, in larger telescopes where you can get good magnification to be able to see some nice detail in the rings. Uh, what you won't see, however, is the propellers. Cassini is currently doing some very close passes through the rings in preparation for its final dive into Saturn's atmosphere. And in some of the images that are brought back, there are these long-lived disruptions in Saturn's rings that look like aeroplane propellers. It's not entirely clear what causes these propellers but they think it's due to small moonlets that are embedded in the disk sweeping up dust behind it and sweeping and leaving a gap behind it. Yep. They're several thousand kilometres long. They're associated with tiny moons that are embedded in the rings. Saturn is rising earlier and earlier, so it's easier to see it before midnight.
1: Okay. How often does the Earth pass through
0: the ring plane of Saturn's rings, Ian? Every 15 years, the rings present themselves to be edge onto us, and then over the coming years, the rings open up and then start closing up again. So round about seven years or so ago, the, the rings were uh, edge onto us and quite thin. Now, over the next few years, you'll see the rings slowly close up again. But at the moment, the rings are uh, almost the, uh, the best position for us to, uh, to look at. And the Cassini division can be picked up in uh, even relatively small telescopes, providing, of course, you've got a nice clear sky. By this, I I don't mean a bright sky, but I mean one where you don't have a a lot of turbulence, and so you've got very good seeing.
1: Very good. What else is up in
0: the sky this week, Ian? Well, we've got two nice comets at the moment, Comet 41P. Which is about magnitude seven. It was, it, you can pick it up. And now that the moon's gone from the, uh, the sky, largely, you can pick it up with, with binoculars. Of course, uh, this is more a, a northern hemisphere comet. From the southern hemisphere, it's, uh, it's quite uh, low above the horizon. The other comet is 2015. This one's better from the northern hemisphere. But at the moment, also low on the horizon in the southern hemisphere, not far from 41P. But for the northern hemisphere, it's quite high in the sky as well.
1: Very good. And we'll remind our listeners at this stage that they can follow Ian F Musgrave on Twitter. Just into your Twitter feed, put in at Ian F Musgrave and follow Ian on Twitter. Or simply go to Google and put in AstroBlog and you'll find out what's up in the sky this week with Ian Musgrave.
0: Uh, yes, indeed. Then one more thing about the rings of Saturn. Yep. Uh, normally you think that the best time to uh, look at a planet is at opposition when it's biggest and brightest. But yep. so There's phenomenal Saturn's rings, which is quite interesting. As you're watching them, you're watching Saturn's rings up to and after opposition, you'll notice that the rings uh, will uh, brighten and then dim at opposition. Uh, this is because of the way the uh, light reflects from the particles in the rings. And so when the particles are directly edge on, you actually get, you don't get as much the light reflected as from when the particles are slightly to the side of direct opposition.
1: Okay, thanks Ian yep. Thank you very much Ian Astroblog Musgrave
0: It's been great speaking with you again As it is has been with you Brendan It's been fantastic And hopefully everyone will have clear skies To see our beautiful gas giants And the dance of the moon and Venus and Mercury in the morning
1: Excellent, so this is a gas giant episode
0: It is indeed a gas giant episode Yeah <laughs>
1: Next up, here is the news for Thursday, 18th of May, 2017. Via the Berkeley News. Pioneering radio astronomer Harold Weaver dies at age 99. Harold Francis Weaver, a pioneer of radio astronomy who discovered the first microwave laser, or maser in space, passed away peacefully in his Kensington, California home last month at the age of 99. As a young astronomer at the University of California's Lick Observatory near San Jose and starting in 1951 as a member of the UC Berkeley astronomy faculty, we became keenly aware of the potential of radio astronomy, which at the time was a young field. Many objects in space give off radio waves from gas clouds and stars to galaxies and today astronomers even observe microwave background radiation to infer the early history of the universe shortly after the Big Bang. Weaver founded the Radio Astronomy Laboratory at Berkeley in 1958. Using the 85-foot Hat Creek dish, Weaver and his colleagues discovered the first astrophysical maser. Microwave amplification by simulated emission or radiation, the radio equivalent of a laser. At the time, many astronomers thought molecules could not exist in space, and the radio emissions weaver recorded were attributed to an unknown form of interstellar matter named mysterium. Yes, mysterium. But the emission was soon identified as coming from OH, or hydroxyl molecules, inside molecular clouds. Since then, many interstellar molecules have been found to emit coherent light in the form of a maser. A gifted teacher, he mentored both undergraduate and graduate students and occasionally taught seminars on archaeoastronomy, the study of how ancient civilizations viewed and explained the changing night sky. Among the many astronomers he mentored was Carl Sagan, whom he encouraged to explore his far-out ideas on the beginnings of life in the universe. Vale, Harold Weaver. Next up, via phys.org, astronomers pursue renegade supermassive black holes. Supermassive black holes are generally stationary objects sitting at the centers of most galaxies, however. Using data from NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory and other telescopes, astronomers recently hunted down what could be a supermassive black hole that may be on the move. This possible renegade black hole which contains about 160 million times the mass of our Sun is located in an elliptical galaxy about 3.9 billion light years from Earth. Astronomers are interested in these moving supermassive black holes because they may reveal more about the properties of these enigmatic objects. This black hole may have recoiled in the terminology used by astronomers, when two smaller supermassive black holes collided and merged to form an even larger one. At the same time, this collision would have generated gravitational waves that emitted more strongly in one direction than others. This newly formed black hole could have received a kick in the opposite direction of those stronger gravitational waves. Astronomers found this recoiling black hole candidate by sifting through X-ray and optical data for thousands of galaxies. First, they used Chandra observations to select galaxies that contain bright X-ray sources. Next, the researchers looked to see if Hubble Space Telescope observations of these X-ray bright galaxies revealed two peaks near their center in the optical image these two peaks might show that a pair of supermassive black holes is present or that a recoiling black hole has moved away from a cluster of stars in the centre of a galaxy. In a related black hole story, astronomers also using NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory and the 6.5 metre clay telescope in Chile have identified the smallest supermassive black hole designated RGG 118 ever detected in the centre of a galaxy. This oxymoronic object could provide clues to how much larger black holes formed along with their host galaxies 13 billion years or more in the past. This supermassive black hole is about 50,000 times the mass of a Sun. This is less than half the previous lowest mass for a black hole at the centre of a galaxy. It is also about 200,000 times less massive than the heaviest black holes found in the centres of other galaxies. Astronomers think that supermassive black holes may form when a large cloud of gas, weighing about 10,000 to 100,000 times that of a sun, collapses into a black hole. Many of these black hole seeds then merge to form much larger supermassive black holes. Alternatively. A supermassive black hole seed could come from a giant star about a hundred times the sun's mass that ultimately forms into a black hole after it runs out of fuel and collapses. There you go. In astronomy, something can be supermassive and tiny at the same time. Now, more on black holes from phys.org. Astronomers aim for the first image of a black hole. After training a network of telescopes stretching from Hawaii to Antarctica to Spain at the heart of our galaxy for five nights running, astronomers say they may have snapped the first ever picture of a black hole. It will take months to develop the image, but if scientists succeed, the results may help peel back mysteries about what the universe is made of and how it came into being. Instead of building a telescope so big that it would probably collapse under its own weight, we combined eight observatories like the pieces of a giant mirror, said Michael Bremer, an astronomer at the International Research Institute for Radio Astronomy, IRAM, and a project manager for the Event Horizon Telescope. This gave us a virtual telescope as big as the Earth about... 10,000 kilometres in diameter, he said. The bigger the telescope, the finer the resolution and level of detail. The targeted supermassive black hole is hidden in plain sight, lurking in the centre of the Milky Way in a region called the Sagittarius constellation, which is 26,000 light-years from Earth. Dubbed Sagittarius A-star, the gravity and light-sucking monster weighs as much as 4 million suns. Theoretical astronomy tells us that when a black hole absorbs matter, planets, debris, anything that comes too close, a brief flash of light is visible. Black holes also have a boundary called an event horizon. The British astronomer Stephen Hawking has famously compared crossing this boundary to going over Niagara Falls in a canoe. If you're above the falls, it's still possible to escape if you paddle hard enough. But once you tip over the edge, however, there is no going back. The Event Horizon Telescope Radio Dish Network is designed to detect the light cast off when objects disappear across that boundary. The network consists of the 30-metre IRAM telescope, located in the Spanish Sierra Nevada mountains, the South Pole Telescope in Antarctica, the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope in Hawaii, and the Atacama Cosmology Telescope in the deserts of northern Chile and four others. 2,000 terabytes of data have been collected and is being processed by supercomputers at the MIT Haystack Observatory in Massachusetts. The images will emerge as we combine all the data, Bremer explained, but we're going to have to wait several months for the result. Thanks, guys. That's going to be an image to die for. That was the news, and that was AstroFizz. See you in two weeks. Bye now.
0: Radio wave!